Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast. Episode number 98, Marvin Zalman, the bite mark dentists, and the counterattack on forensic science reform. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence and proof. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. On the show today is Marvin Zalman, a professor of criminal justice at Wayne State University. Marvin and I are discussing his recent article, co-authored with James Wendell, entitled The Bite Mark Dentists and the Counterattack on Forensic Science Reform. Now, as you'll hear in what I think is a wonderful conversation, Marvin and I really tackle two different issues. So first, you'll hear Marvin and I discuss this recent article written by a group of forensic odontologists defending bite mark evidence, and Marvin does a wonderful job of demonstrating why that article is empirically and theoretically unsound. In the second half of the interview, though, Marvin and I kind of take it to a higher level of generality, and we tackle the broader question of why there continues to be this impassioned support for what's largely become a debunked form of science. So ultimately then, I think my conversation with Marvin was insightful, at least for me, on multiple levels, both practical and theoretical, and I hope you enjoy it. Marvin, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invitation, Alex. So I think it's probably fair to say that bite mark evidence has kind of fallen into disrepute in the evidence scholarly community. But your paper begins by highlighting a recent defense of bite mark evidence by a group of forensic odontologists. So let's start there. Tell us about that article. Before I get to that, Alex, when you invited me, I looked at Excited Utterance podcasts and I listened to one by Michael Reisinger. He was interviewed by your colleague, Ed Cheng. And Michael's groundbreaking work, as you know, illuminated the flaws of a type of forensic evidence, pattern or impression analysis. Reisinger said um, in his podcast that his work began a process of cultural change in the forensic sciences, and, and that change takes a long time. And I'd like to think that our article contributes to the cultural change that Mike Reisinger's work began. So pattern analysis compares a crime scene sample to evidence from a known suspect or source. Common patterns are like fingerprints or ballistics are fairly commonly known. Bite mark analysis is a form of pattern analysis where a photograph or dental impressions of a bite mark on skin is compared to a cast that's taken of a suspect's uh, dentition. So while some pattern analysis is reasonably accurate, like fingerprinting, others are pretty weak. And quite frankly, bite mark is almost a poster boy for weak uh, forensic science. So, okay, getting to that article, Epidermis and Enamel, it's a 10-page article that was labeled an editorial, and it was written by 11 forensic odontologists, and it appeared in the scientific journal, the American Journal of Forensic Medicine. I thought the title was comical, it was almost silly, and a quick read-through showed that it was a very weak 
piece. So I got to thinking about how medically trained professionals could even have written it. Well, it's a fascinating response. I mean, you do a really wonderful job of responding to that article, Epidermis and Enamel. But before we get to that article, I want to build up to the discussion, if you will. So, so let's get some background on bite mark evidence in the courtroom. How common is forensic odontology? Yeah, well, forensic odontology includes some useful and sound procedures like uh, identifying uh, dental remains and mass disasters. Uh, but it also includes bite mark analysis. And uh, odontologists were around from, well, the beginning of the 20th century, but they began doing bite mark analysis in the 1970s. And the practice became popular when it was used in the Ted Bundy trial, which was pretty famous. Oddly enough, from legal scholars should be aware that bite mark analysis was held admissible in a California appellate case people versus marks without ever passing the fry test. So after that, court simply admitted bite mark on, on the basis of the marks precedent. I'm not sure really how common bite mark analysis is. You know, there are a lot of criminal justice practices where, you know, we see them on TV, but we really don't know how often they're employed. So I'm not sure how often prosecutors will go to an odontologist to ask for a bite mark analysis. What we do know is that it's being used. Uh, right now, the Innocence Project is appealing several cases in which bite mark analysis led to allegedly wrongful convictions. The National Registry of Exonerations lists uh, 29 people who've been wrongfully convicted based in part on bite mark evidence. So my sense is that bite mark evidence is employed uh, only in serious cases, homicides or rapes, where the other evidence is rather weak and prosecutors are thrashing about looking for some support. Beyond my concern about bite mark analysis being admitted in most states is that other kinds of weak pattern comparison techniques lead to similar results. So I want to follow up on those cases that you mentioned where bite mark evidence is being used, because your paper details two narratives that kind of contrast when errors are either caused by corrupt motives on the part of the forensic odontologist, or if it's just simple human error. So let's begin with the former. Here, talking about perhaps corrupt motives in the context of bite mark evidence, you introduce Michael West. Who's Michael West and what does his story tell us? Yeah, well, <laughs> Michael West is a notorious character. I mean, he's been written about and criticized for years. And we drew on this amazing book, The Cadaver King and the Country Dentist by Radley Balco and Tucker Carrington, which provides a wealth of information about West. He would actually fabricate evidence by taking teeth molds and inserting them into the skin of cadavers that were homicide victims or parent homicide victims or stuff like that. I could go on and on, but you can read about West. And I suspect that he was probably an outlier. And, and you did mention corrupt motives. I think he was kept in business uh, partly because uh, the courts in which he testified did not do a gatekeeping role to screen out junk science. And when you read The Cadaver King, you really see that in Mississippi, where he practiced, he was supported by a deeply corrupted forensic science establishment. So it wasn't just him. Uh, there, there was a whole culture of corruption in that function. 
Well, let me try to contrast Michael West here with a different type of forensic odontologist. And you discuss in your paper this individual, Dr. Alan Warnick. Tell us about Warnick and perhaps how his approach to forensic odontology, perhaps no less concerning, but it's different than Michael West. Well, uh, Warnick is now uh, retired, and I think he represents the standard case, not an outlier like West. He had, uh, he's from Michigan. He had a good local reputation both as a practicing dentist and as a forensic dentist as well. He had helped to identify the remains of people who were killed in a few disasters, one in the Detroit Metro Airport. He helped to identify people in the 9-11 disaster. But he also uncritically accepted the scientifically untested bite mark method. And when he testified in one case, he got into trouble by making statements about the rare probability of bite mark matches that were simply not well supported. He did one act that really was a misconduct. He lied about some evidence and got another expert to testify. In the case that got me interested into bite mark evidence, that was the exoneration of uh, Jeff Muldowen and Michael Christini. And my co-author on this article, Jim Wendell and I, had interviewed participants in that case, so we were kind of alerted to the issue. I mentioned that another expert was uh, inveigled by uh, Warnick into testifying improperly in their conviction. When they had a second trial and were exonerated, to her credit, she recanted that earlier testimony. And I do think it's worth noting that several state and federal courts in Michigan played a proper gatekeeping role in cases involving Warnick. And when they did so, it undermined his credibility in this state. So I want to pull these threads together, if I can, and maybe zoom out a little bit. What do West's and Warnick's stories perhaps tell us about the nature of wrongful convictions based on bite mark evidence? So should we view the median odontologist as a bad actor in the courtroom, or is it more good-meaning people with bad science? Yeah, I think the latter is better analysis. I think like most forensic dentists, Warnick was motivated to use skills to convict dangerous perpetrators, which is fine. The problem is not malicious intent, but in this case, cognitive error. And I think what Mike Reisinger's work and the work of many others has shown us is that erroneous thinking can be systemic, especially in these pattern matching of practices of forensic science, as opposed to more scientific laboratory-based analyses. Great. So rewinding a bit back to my first question, I mentioned that bite mark evidence is rather unpopular in the evidence scholarly community. And your paper does a really wonderful job of unpacking why that is. Now, interestingly, I found this fascinating. You note that DNA evidence was actually the impetus for a reexamination of bite mark evidence. So why is that? Well, actually, I think that's well known. But as a scholar who focuses on wrongful conviction, I think it's important to keep in mind that the American innocence movement owes as much to psychological research as to DNA analysis. So research on false confessions, for example, mistaken eyewitness identification, child witnesses, and especially the work on cognitive biases has provided, quite frankly, the basis for most of the reforms that are advanced by the innocence movement. 
Yeah, but it's it's also true. I mean, it's very true that the factor that really convinced American lawyers and judges that wrongful convictions occur on a regular basis was the growing number of DNA exonerations in the 1990s. So the evidentiary power of a DNA match was so powerful that uh, those errors could not be denied. What was amazing, what came to be known fairly early on in the innocence movement was that half of all DNA exonerations in half of those cases, a bad forensic science was a factor. So up to that point, people assumed that fingerprint uh, expert says it's a fingerprint that's got to be true 100% of the time, but that wasn't the case. And so the exoneration of defendants based on, on bite mark naturally led to that technique being questioned. And as work was done, its weaknesses were exposed. So looking at methodology itself, you know that note that many of the assumptions underlying bite mark evidence are wrong. So build that out for us. Well, for starters, the uniqueness of human dentition cannot be substantiated. Keep in mind that a bite mark typically comes only from the four upper and four lower teeth. It's not based on a person's entire dentition, as would be the case with identifying a deceased. So the amount of information that's actually left in a true bite mark is fairly limited. Most importantly, skin is a terrible medium for recording or, as they say, registering bite marks because of the structure of skin. A bruise that's left by a bite mark on skin can be distorted. And over time, the shape and color of the bite mark begins to change very quickly. That's true not only on living victims of, of assaults, but on cadavers as well. It's even the fact that odontologists often have difficulty in telling the difference between an ordinary bruise and a bite mark. So, you know, I'd like to add that my co author and I did not invent this knowledge from day one. We drew on a lot of sources. And I guess the point for listeners is that the conclusions found in our article are available to lawyers and courts and in many authoritative sources. Of course, the groundbreaking work of the National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences, a book that came out in 2009 called Strengthening Forensic Science, really got the ball rolling, not only in America, but across the world about rethinking the accuracy of forensic science. Thinking back, I think the most important work that was done was rigorous research by Dr. Mary Bush and her team at the Buffalo Dental School about 10 years ago. And they published more than 10, I think, quite rigorous articles describing their experiments that undermined the reliability of, of bite mark analysis. And I think the important point is that her work has not been seriously challenged, the best of my knowledge. It certainly wasn't in uh, epidermis uh, and enamel. So these analyses were written up in something called the PCAST report. Uh, that stands for the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, which was published in 2016. And there is a terrific article that was originally an amicus curiae brief that was later published as an article by Michael Sachs and 37 other scholars. So our criticism of uh, bite mark is hardly idiosyncratic. Perfect. So now that we have, a, I think, a really strong foundation and background in bite mark evidence, 
Let's return to this article that was kind of the focus or genesis of your project on um, this article, Epidermis and Enamel. So where did the authors there go wrong? Yeah. Well, as I indicated, when I first looked at it, it was so weak that I thought it would be pretty easy to criticize. I think the larger picture is that I was less interested in pointing out its errors than asking why and how trained medical professionals could write such a thing. But to sort of briefly review that, I think the most important lack in that article is that it really does not explain the scientific basis for bite mark analysis, nor, as I indicated a moment ago, does it challenge the research that was done by Bush and her colleagues. And, you know, when you read the article, it's just filled with logical flaws. It includes non sequiturs. It criticizes the critics instead of their arguments. It argues from authority. It, it actually relies on testimonials, which is, quite frankly, ridiculous in a serious academic or scientific work. They also blame others for errors that led to bite mark convictions, which is not really wrong. I mean, almost every wrongful conviction case has a variety of errors, but that doesn't let the flaws with bite mark analysis off the hook. They falsely claimed that some of the exonerations listed by the National Registry were not wrongful convictions. I think they were just dead wrong about that. And if you read the editorial, I mean, its tone is defensive. At some points, it's petulant. And one point that really got me fairly upset is that they actually defame the Innocence Project. So, you know, I was sort of shaking my head about that whole enterprise. So I want to follow up on a really interesting point you made in your comments just now. And that's the higher order question of why there continues to be this impassioned support for a debunked form of science, right? So what's the first perspective on why this defense might be occurring in the first place, given the empirical evidence that demonstrates that forensic odontology has problems? Yeah, well, we thought about that and we came up with several psychological categories to explain what might have motivated them, which was what I was really interested in. Now, I want to make it clear that our analysis is speculative and suggestive. Uh, it's not a conclusive psychological study. But we did draw on terrific articles by Susan Bandis and Aviva Orenstein. They wrote articles about a decade or so ago offering psychological explanations for the irrational resistance to DNA testing by prosecutors back in the early days of the innocence movement. And what seemed clear is that the prosecutors saw their ideal world crumbling. And instead of confronting the new reality of DNA exonerations, some of them retreated into mental shells, so to speak, and simply denied reality. So it occurred to me that the, the bite mark dentists were engaged in similar process. And so we offered three different social psychological constructs that would help to explain you know, why they were treated. And so, I mean, the first of these was organizational deviance, where we suggested that a subculture of odontologists who supported bite mark analysis gained control of their organization, the American Board of Forensic Odontology. Now, an additional framework that you suggest that might be at work or at play here is the well-known concept of cognitive dissonance. So where do you see that at work? 
Yeah, the, the dissonance was clearly between their belief that bite mark analysis was accurate when they testified on the one hand, and the fact that DNA exonerations demolished this belief. They, they certainly couldn't get around that. So whether they wanted to or not, the DNA exonerations forced them to deal with the new reality. Now, some odontologists, like Michael Bowers, who was pretty well known, came to realize that the method was flawed. He had uh, supported it in the textbook, and which his earlier writings we looked at pretty carefully were cautious, but he supported it, but came around to see that the evidence convinced him that it wasn't right. But I think that most bite mark dentists, at least the ones who wrote that and seemed to control the American board, responded by doubling down on their beliefs. They took control of their organization, and then they started attacking reputable science research. They, they actually sued Michael Bowers, and uh, they rather aggressively attacked Mary Bush almost on a personal level, rather than doing what should be done in science, which is to engage in a scientific reply. So finally on this front, you examine the odontologist's commitment to bite mark evidence under what's referred to as evolutionary interactionalist theory. So tell us more about that. Yeah, that really did catch my attention and interest. So this theory is advanced by psychologists uh, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber in a book entitled The Enigma of Reason, A New Theory of Human Understanding. I think it was published by Harvard University Press. I have the cheap, uh, easy to underline the paperback version. Let me just say that it's really going to be up to the experts in psychology who are going to have to determine if this evolutionary interactionist theory of Mercier and Sperber is correct. And I certainly can't into all of it here. I, mean, I drew this out of a 300 plus page book. But in short, they assert that cognitive biases, right, which really have come to light in the last 50 years, and which I said are really important, boil down to what they call my side bias, that basically we're seeing the world through lens that support our own egos and our, our own views of things. When you think of reason in this way, they argue against the classical view that the faculty of reason, call it that, is designed to produce logically correct conclusions. Instead, they see reason as an evolutionary development and as a facility that allows humans in interaction with others to, to produce reasons that justify their actions and their beliefs. So. What Mercier and Sperber argue is that these reasons are then used to try to convince others in face-to-face -face situations, right? And that, you know, we evolved in smaller clans where face-to-face -face decisions about important things are really important. But, and I think we all should recognize this, or most of us, since we're in very unusual times, people are better at, at poking holes in the arguments of others than realizing our own errors. So in a real argument, better decisions emerge from that dialectic, from other people pointing, poking holes at my reasons. So when you look at reasoning this way, it helps to explain why individuals can generate some bad reasoning that might leave a person astray. But of course, on the positive side, when reason occurs in, in group settings, like the face-to-face -face argumentation of the prehistoric clan, but in our era, of course, the jury trial and most 
significantly the kind of back and forth that goes on in real scientific research that then improves decisions and knowledge. And, you know, we have hundreds of years of the scientific revolution that shows that. So anyway, picking up on this theme, we argued that what the bite mark evidence dentists in this article didn't really engage in a back and forth argumentation. They retreated into groupthink. And that certainly is a phenomenon that's been studied in a lot of articles about decision errors that are made by groups. So I'd just like to wrap this up by saying that when I wrote the article, I wasn't thinking about your specialty of evidence law. I was drawing on this to try to explain these bite mark dentists. But now that I think about it as a result of your asking me to speak, I think that evidence scholars who were so concerned with logic and truth really ought to explore this evolutionary interactionist theory that Mercier and Spurber have developed. It's certainly a fascinating theory, and I think that perhaps ties into my next question about what's next for the literature here. Is there another paper on this particular topic, or is there something tangential to this topic that might forward the literature with an evidentiary perspective? Well, I'm certainly not going to be working along those lines. And as for bite mark uh, analysis itself, I'm not sure that more research is required. The weaknesses of bite mark are so well established at this point that I think it would be that certainly judges who are confronted with these issues should think seriously about their gatekeeping role. You know, I'd, I'd go back to Michael Reisinger's point that the larger goal of the work that's done by specialists in this field is to participate in the cultural transformation of the forensic science. And some of them, there's research now on fingerprinting that is looking at proficiency testing. I think they're becoming, and that whole field is becoming committed to that. And there are experts like Etiel Dror, my friend Simon Cole, Michael Sachs, your colleague Ed Cheng, and many others whose work I think is important, but it needs to expand in, into other areas. By the way, I'm worried that there are actually some areas on, on which there's research. There are articles in the scientific journals on methods that are even less intuitively reliable than bite mark. I, I don't know if you'd care to believe this, but there are articles on lip mark evidence and ear mark evidence. So, you know, one shakes one's head. But, uh, you know, as I said, I think that we're at a point now where prosecutors and defense lawyers and judges who practice criminal law really need to become much more knowledgeable about forensic science. They need to take CLE courses to deepen their knowledge in general. And when they get a case with forensic evidence, they really should call for the experts. As far as the scholarly community, as I indicated, I think they should join in this cultural change that Mike Reisinger called for. Marvin, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Alex. It's really been a great experience. On reflection, I really enjoyed this conversation that I had with Marvin, and I think his paper is insightful on a few different levels. So first, and most practically, on the evidentiary level, his paper's treatment of bite mark evidence is fantastic. He does a wonderful job of sifting through the empirical literature and demonstrating why the protestations of these forensic odontologists notwithstanding, 
bite mark evidence suffers from fatal flaws that renders it insufficiently reliable for the courtroom. So to the extent that you have any questions about bite mark evidence, that you have any questions about, you know, junk science in the courtroom, I'd encourage you to pick up Marvin's paper and look at his analysis, which can serve as a template for attacking junk science and in particular bite mark evidence. But what I actually find most interesting about Marvin's paper is what Marvin and I discussed in the latter half of the interview. It's that higher order question about why there continues to be this impassioned level of support for what's largely a debunked form of science in the courtroom. Now, Marvin did a wonderful job responding to me on that front. He mentioned cognitive biases like cognitive dissonance, evolutionary interactionalist theory, or just a stubborn unwillingness to admit that the empirical literature isn't supporting bite mark evidence. But I think the lingering feeling I had after my conversation with Marvin, despite his wonderful answer to the question of why there continues to be this impassioned support for junk science was a feeling of puzzlement almost as to how epistemologically these individuals who are going to be well-versed in the empirical literature surrounding biomark evidence nonetheless stand by it, nonetheless continue to defend it. And ultimately, perhaps this serves as a reminder to us all that the central concern in Daubert, the central concern in Fry, the central concern and those latter two elements of Rule 702 remain as salient as ever today. Cases often turn on our evaluation of whether a scientific principle, a scientific methodology, is reliable or not, whether it's sufficiently scientifically valid to reach the ears and eyes of the jury, or whether it should be excluded as insufficiently reliable. And that gatekeeping check, that gatekeeping inquiry, as we see in the context of bite mark evidence, is more important than ever. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, the University of Arkansas School of Law, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The producer is Ed Chang, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host today, Alex Nunn, from the University of Arkansas School of Law, and I do hope that you will join us next time when we take on another work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.